Hello everyone, my name is Rich Karlinski and this is Young History, episode 136 on Burkina Faso. The capital of this country is Ouagadougou. Now the name of this country means land of the upright, sometimes upright people slash upright men. This means that the nation is home to honest and morally sound people and it was given this name by the main founder of the Burkina Faso culture. Burkina Faso hosts the Pan-African Film and Television Festival of Ouagadougou one of the largest and most prestigious film festivals in Africa. It provides a platform for African filmmakers to showcase their work and promotes the development of the continent's film industry. Traditional wrestling, known as Lute Traditionale, is a popular sport in Burkina Faso. The capital city, Ouagadougou, is a French adaption of the native name Ouagadougou, meaning where people get honor and respect. The flag of Burkina Faso is striped red and green, with a central yellow star. Yellow represents the country's mineral wealth, because there's a lot of gold. Red represents the revolutionary struggle in the blood of the people. And green symbolizes the hope and abundance of nature in the land. The star itself stands for Sankara's revolutionary principles. We'll get into what that means very, very soon. Now, I don't want to dilly-dally any longer with this one, because Burkina Faso actually had a lot of history to delve into that I thought would be harder to find, but the coverage on Burkina Faso actually went really deep, which is always a great surprise. So, I'm not going to waste any more time, and I'm just going to finish this intro up so we can get on into it. With all that being said, one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski, this is Young History, and this is Burkina Faso. Thank you all so much for being here, and let's do this thing. Our origins begin at least 100,000 years ago, when the first people walked to this part of the earth. There is little to no coverage at all of the history between hundreds of thousands of years ago and the early ancient period. So between 3000 and 1000 BC, animals started to migrate into land and people started to move along with them. Around 3000, nomadic practices were used, and then as you got closer to 1000 BC, you see people settled down more and more to be in one location with the animals, rather than using pastoralism to travel with them. It's a much more set system and is the start of the early agricultural period. The first known people groups here were the Bobo, Lunsi, and Gurunsi. They arose because of early trade networks that passed through the area. Traders and natives alike both found similarities in culture which led them to form into larger groups, the big three we know today. While the primary center of ancient civilization in present day, Mali was the place where all the influence was going, the influence from Mali extended into the parts of Burkina Faso. The Jena de Geno was a major trading center along the Niger River, and played a crucial role in the Trans-Saharan trade routes. Archaeological evidence suggests that the civilization existed from about 250 BC to 1400 CE. The Lobi people, who primarily inhabit southwestern Burkina Faso, have a rich cultural history. They were organized into small chiefdoms, with each chiefdom having its own ruling chief. The Lobi are also known for their distinctive ironwork wooden sculptures, and spiritual beliefs. They have a strong tradition of ancestor worship and believe in the presence of spirits in nature. They have many rituals to practice this, and some can even still be seen today. The Garunsi kingdoms were formed by the Garunsi people. They resided in the central and eastern parts of Burkina Faso. Each kingdom had its own chief, and the Garunsi were renowned for their unique and elaborate architecture, including the construction of fortified mud-brick houses known as Tiabele. These structures served both as homes and defensive forts against attackers. Around the 700s, the Ghana Empire, also known as the Ouagadougou Empire, spread its influence from that time until the 1000s. The ancient Ghana Empire, not to be confused with modern Ghana, extended into parts of Burkina Faso, particularly in the southwest. It was a powerful trading empire known for its wealth, especially in gold. 
the capital of the Ghana Empire was Kumbi Sare, and it played a key role into the trans-Saharan trade. The empire eventually declined due to internal conflicts and external pressures. The Dagomban Kingdom rose to prominence in the 1100s. It was influential in the northern regions of Burkina Faso. The Dagombas, a Mole Dagomba ethnic group, had organized political structures with chiefs and rulers. These states engaged in trade and had cultural practices that influenced the broader region. This included other talks with spirits and their belief that connection to their neighbor was the most important thing. That's why they facilitated trade so heavily. Also in the 1100s, Princess Yenega of the Dagomba Kingdom clashed with her father, a Dagomban king. She fled to forge her own fortune and met an elephant hunter who she fell in love with and eventually had a son with. Once her son came of age, he returned to the Dagomba Kingdom and received an army from his grandfather, the king. With this army, Yenega's son would shape the Tank Dogo Kingdom. Her son would also marry a woman from a local Nansi tribe. When this happened, the Dagomba, Busani, and Nansi people were now united as one. They formed into the Mossi people. This is a very challenged historical record, but it is the best we currently have to go off of. And the creation of these people, archaeologically, can be traced to this time. So we do believe that this makes sense, but there's probably some fabrications in the story. To get more to the Masi kingdom, we have to talk about the Masi people, who were one of the largest ethnic groups in modern-day Burkina Faso. They established several powerful kingdoms under the overall Masi umbrella. This included Tenkodogo, Owugudugu, and Yatenga. By the 1200s, they had expanded their control of the area. They went on to create the towns of Wagadugu and Yatenga as parts of the Mossi Empire. The empire was made up of small autonomous Mossi kingdoms based in cities or towns. That's why Yatenga and Wagadugu were both cities and kingdoms. They mounted horseback to establish war superiority over the land, and their mastery of this from all the different cultures that made up the Mossi made it so that they were very good at wiping people out, and not a lot of people had a chance against them. The Mosi minority ruled over the many indigenous peoples in early Burkina Faso. The Mosi mastered the use of horseback cavalry and used this to tightly hold control of the land for a very long time. The Mosi believed in the Mogonapa, which meant king of the world. They believed that this person directly descended from Yanega herself. The Mosi are most famed culturally for their masks that can be almost 10 feet tall. They are donned during ceremonies of connecting with ancestors, which is another huge part of their culture. The most powerful of the Mosi kingdoms was Ogudugu. It formed as the Mosi expanded their control of the region and was the most prominent in the modern borders of Burkina Faso. Around 1337, the Mosi came into interaction with the Mali Empire, which had already converted to Islam. The Mosi used their cavalry to storm into Mali and sometimes Timbuktu itself. This was unique for the time because most who challenged the Mali Empire did not live to tell about it, and Timbuktu was a fortress that was hard to penetrate, so this success by the Mosi was a shock. Islam began to spread all around the Mossi Empire, but the people of the empire still resisted. They favored their long-standing animist beliefs. These were also important because they are what connected the Mogonapa to his kingly claim. Animistic beliefs named the king the most powerful living creature in the land. If the king were to convert, it would cause anarchy and instability and would devalue the name Mogonapa. Eventually, the Songhai Empire expanded to take over the land and power vacuum that the Mali had. This led to clashes between the Songhai and the Mossi. The Songhai called a jihad against the Mossi kingdoms in the mid-1400s. The Mossi led their kingdom to victory after decades of brutal fighting. Eventually, the Portuguese arrived by the end of the century, specifically in 1497. After exploring the region, they believed that the Mossi kingdom was the lost kingdom of Prester John. The kingdom was said to be a safe haven that stood against all false beliefs. The fact that the Mossi attacked Muslim empires like the Mali and the Songhai made the Portuguese believe that this was true and that this was the kingdom of Prester John. 
The Portuguese moved further inland to search for the kingdom, but they did not find it. Despite that, Christianity was still introduced and found traction among isolated people groups. The Songhai eventually requested that the Masi stop fighting and convert to Islam. The Masi rejected this and faced the full force of the Songhai. The Songhai conquered the entire empire and pushed the Masi south in 1532. Despite their defeat, the Masi never gave up the fight against the Songhai and never converted. In 1561, many Masi resisted the Songhai and assassinated some Songhai ambassadors. This made the tensions even worse between the two. The Songhai expanded power. This forced the Masi to reduce their policies against Muslims. The Songhai fell to Moroccan forces in the late 1500s, and this caused a lot of Muslim migration into the area. Islam began to take root in the Masi communities. The Ashanti Empire laid south of the Masi lands, but expanded to become a giant regional power in the early 1700s. The Masi and Ashanti had a great connection and wanted to use the new booming Arab trade routes to benefit one another. The two people groups had shared culture and language that helped them connect. The slave trade had sadly become one of the most profitable industries in West Africa. By the late 1700s, powerful West African kingdoms started to launch slave raids into the inland to capture people and sell them in the Atlantic slave trade. Kingdoms that did this included the Ashanti. However, the Masi rejected the idea of this, and this created a rift between the two people groups. Europeans brought violence and diseases that ravaged African communities. They also sought to explore the inland areas of West Africa. In 1853, Heinrich Bart was a German explorer that wanted to explore a new route to Timbuktu. He is considered the first European to reach the modern area of Burkina Faso. After this, there was a huge increase in European trade and influence in the region. Transportation technology, modernized and advanced medicine, and modern education were all introduced to the land. Gotlobe Adolf Krauss led an expedition in 1886. He went purely for the sake of understanding the people that lived here, rather than expanding a colonial power or for the slave trade. He also directly opposed European expansionism. He made it very far inland and was able to interact with the mossy lands and was greeted peacefully. Krauss used the name Malamusa, meaning thank you, to show the peace to these people and to show a separation from his European past and the European powers. He met the king of Ouagadougou and both respected each other heavily. Both sides saw honor in each other. Krauss was the first European to make it all the way to meeting the king of Ouagadougou. At the same time as this, different kingdoms were moving in on Mossy land, some of them African and some of them European. Ever since the Songhai defeated the Yatunga, the Mossi were spread into different kingdoms. The most powerful was the kingdom of Ouagadougou, and of course the Mogonaba was always the one that is considered the most powerful. The other Mossi kings challenged the rule of the Mogonaba and broke away from the greater Mossi unity. Fighting between the Mossi kingdom led to a need for backup. So, Mossi kings reached out to European powers for help defeating their opponents. The Busani became a protectorate of Germany, the Yatenga with France, and the Mogumba of Ouagadougou signed a protectorate with Britain. In 1901, the British and French powers had agreed to draw the borders of West Africa for mutual benefit. Then the Mossi lands were legally made French. The Europeans established this, but not all Mossi agreed. The Lobi people used guerrilla warfare to resist and pester the French Empire as they expanded into the Mossi territory. The French continued to expand their control. Then, the French installed a king of their choosing to maintain internal stability. Once French rule was fully established, a lot of influence came to the land. The French brought technological, medical, and educational advancements. One of the odd upgrades was small towns of classic West African huts being surrounded by walls to form European-style city grids. But of course, there was the other side of that blade. The French forced the Mossi people to work in mines to harvest gold and other valuable resources. The French eventually named this land Upper Volta because it was this upper flowing region near the Niger River. 
and was a facility of trade that was above all the coastal nations. Then World War I happened. After the French were brutalized in the early part of the war, they turned to their colonies for help, whether they liked it or not. Around 50,000 people were drafted into the conflict from Upper Volta. Revolts occurred with the joint Mali and Mossi forces, against the French control while they were distracted with the war. The French cracked down on this very hard. The French went village to village and burned them to the ground in total war tactics. They had no care for civilians and charged their way through the entire area with the use of machine guns and artillery on civilians. The French conquered the entire area and made it into an official colony, thus officially changing the name in 1919 from the region of Upper Volta to Upper Volta, the colony of France. Edward Hessling was named the first governor of Upper Volta, the colony. He expanded the infrastructure of the nation on the backs of the people who had to build it. He helped fund the cotton industry as well. He wanted there to be a forced cotton labor and growth in every single town. There was a massive deportation of indigenous people to Ivory Coast as a labor force and so that French land could be expanded. Following this, many people fled from the country and migrated to other nations to escape French colonial rule. The economy was faltering, and the French didn't want to put the effort into fixing it. Instead, they proposed that Upper Volta region be partitioned into land for Niger, Ivory Coast, and Mali. In 1932, this was rejected. By the end of that decade, World War II broke out. It saw the citizens of Upper Volta forced into the French fighting forces against the Axis powers. These men returned from the front line with a burning desire to be free, and a lot of battle experience. Daniel Wazin Koulibaly proposed early doctrines of the African movement when he said African unity was the only way to defeat colonialism. The Masi rejected this because they wanted true independence from all powers. Upper Volta formed an assembly based on the French system. They used this assembly to methodically create policies for more and more autonomy. Koulibaly started to gain political momentum from this and he used his platform, the Unity Against Colonialism, to extend his role in the government. He advocated heavily for independence, but he didn't live to see it happen because he died in 1958. His successor was Maurice Yamiogo, who led the African Democratic Rally, ADR, and fought for independence very hard. He helped gain the nation more and more autonomy until independence was fully achieved. Independence occurred for Upper Volta along many other African nations in 1960, known as the Year of Africa. Maurice Yamiogo ascended to the position of president, the first, of the independent nation. He quickly became a dictator when he eliminated opposition parties and made policies that favored the Mossi over every other ethnic group. The economy suffered heavily, and most people lived near the poverty line. Senghole Lamizana led a military coup against President Yamiogo and had him ousted from power in 1966. He took power in the new military junta government. He helped stabilize the economy, and he worked with workers, unions, and local chiefs to draft a new constitution for Upper Volta. In 1970, he made the nation a democracy and won the election to become president in 1978. This was a contested election, and its stability followed his leadership for the next few years. Lamizana implemented a series of political and economic reforms. He initiated the first Republican experiment, which aimed to promote a multi-party system and civilian rule. However, his government faced challenges, including instability after each election and a lot of economic difficulties. In 1980, Lamizana's presidency came to an end when he was overthrown in a coup led by Colonel Saye Zerbo. Following the coup, Lamizana was arrested and detained. Saye Zerbo fought on the behalf of people who felt they were oppressed by this regime and became president in 1980. Zerbo's administration also faced economic challenges. This included high inflation and a struggling economy. His government attempted to implement economic and social policies to address these issues, but the measures were not entirely successful. 
Zero's regime was marked by political repression, with restrictions on political freedoms and human rights. The military maintained a strong grip on power, suppressing anyone who dared to challenge Zerbo. Despite the restrictions on resistance, he still faced a lot of political uprising against his rule. Eventually, he faced a real coup. Jean-Baptiste Oidrago led his people against the Zerbo and ousted him in 1982. Aldrego became the president and represented the Popular Democratic Movement for Progress of Burkina Faso, or MBP. Oy Drago's government attempted to introduce political and economic reform. He sought to address some of the challenges faced by the country, including the economic difficulties and consistent political unrest. He was heavily faced with resistance because nobody knew what these policies would mean or how they would affect the nation, so he was unable to fully address any of the issues he actually promised he would solve. Oy Drago faced internal dissent within the military and the broader population. The political situation remained fragile, and there were tensions between various factions within Burkina Faso. And then we get introduced to Thomas Sankara. Sankara was a soldier for Upper Volta that traveled to Madagascar at age 22. He saw the revolutionaries there that fought against the colonial influence of France. Sankara started to study Marxist ideas with the revolutionaries. He returned to Upper Volta in 1973. He was then appointed prime minister for his great political knowledge and his wealth of understanding of different African nations. He preached ideas of change, peace, and transparency. But, since Sankara was a Marxist, many people were suspicious of him. He was arrested for alleged ties to Libya, but this made Sankara even more popular with the people. By the end of the year, his supporters protested for his freedom. Once he was released, Sankara found the entire nation calling for his rise to power. Sankara then ousted Oidrago in 1983. Sankara was a military commander, but had huge political fans for the nation. He preached about a strong and united nation. This gained him a lot of support. He made a lot of reforms nationwide as soon as he got power. He outlawed female genitalia mutilation and planted 10 million trees nationwide to combat environmental abuse. He mandated national vaccinations and enlisted anti-corruption acts to keep himself in check. He also expanded women's rights, limited the power of regional chiefs, expanded literacy education, and that's not all. He became the first leader of an independent African nation to appoint a woman to a high position in government. Most famously, he also changed the name of Upper Volta to the country of Burkina Faso, meaning the land of the upright and honest, or the land of the upright and honest men. People of the nation became known universally as Burkinabe, regardless of their ethnic origins. During his rule, a war with Mali broke out in 1985 over border disputes. Mali was backed by the West, so Burkina Faso was brutally invaded until a ceasefire was drawn up. The borders of the nation were reestablished. Sankara aligned himself with the USSR against Western colonialism. He started to become more authoritarian by repressing freedom of speech and the press. He also banned trade unions and started to chip away at political parties. All of this put a really big target on his back. Blaise Kempoare was the second in command to Sankara and had defended him with his life many times. There was early assassination attempts against Sankara that Blaise was the one to stop. Blaze started to sense the growth of greed in Sankara. On October 15, 1987, Sankara's headquarters were raided. In this coup, Sankara was assassinated. Many believe Blaze was the man who ordered the attack. Sankara is often referred to as the Che Guevara of Africa because of his socialist ideals, liberal changes when in power, and the controversy of his means to the end. Sankara is one of the most renowned and judged figures in Faso's history. But despite this, he has statues in Burkina Faso for his great achievements as a leader, but he is also called a tyrant for his late authoritarian regime. Kampoare assumed the presidency and headed the Popular Democratic Party, RDP, the new single-party system of the country. 
During his presidency, Kampoare implemented various political and economic reforms. Burkina Faso moved towards a multi-party system in the early 1990s, but Kampoare maintained a firm grip on power. His government pursued economic liberalization policies and sought foreign investment. Kampoare was re-elected multiple times in elections that were criticized for their irregularities and lack of genuine competition. He won elections in 1991, 1998, 2005, and 2010. In the early 2010s, Kampoare faced increasing discontent and protests, particularly related to the fact that no matter how much he did during his rule, there was still widespread economic challenges for the people of the nation. He was also accused of corruption for his long-standing rule. In October 2014, Demonstrations erupted nationwide against his attempt to amend the Constitution to allow for another term in office. He killed many political opponents to hold on to power and also abused human rights of many people in the resistance. After decades of abuse, Campare was finally pushed out of power by his people. Blaise resigned from the presidency on October 31, 2014, after nearly 27 years in power. Following his resignation, the country attempted to reestablish democracy. Kampoare has a very mixed legacy, with some criticizing how authoritarian he became and the circumstances around him coming to power. But many cite that the long-term reign of him as president led to stability in the nation, and he tried his best to keep the nation afloat in hard times throughout the late 1900s. In 2015, Rock Mark Christian Kampoare became the first democratically elected president in decades. The government focused on economic development and poverty reduction initiatives during the late period. Burkina Faso continued to grapple with issues related to economic inequality, access to education, healthcare, and other social services. But Kabore also had to face external issues. The crisis in Mali, particularly the 2012 Tuareg Rebellion and the subsequent jihadist insurgency. It spilled over into the neighboring countries like Burkina Faso. Fighters and weapons flowed across borders, contributing to regional instability and a rise in terrorism. Burkina Faso faced increasing security challenges, particularly from the groups of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. These groups operated in the Sahel region, and Burkina Faso experienced numerous terrorist attacks, including bombings and assaults on security forces and civilians. The government, under President Kabore, worked to address these security threats through military operations and a whole lot of regional cooperation with Mali and other great powers. The attacks from Al-Qaeda caused about 1 million Burkinabe to flee the nation as refugees. Despite all the chaos, Kabore was re-elected in 2020. Widespread discontent over the unchallenged safety issues continued. However, in January 22, the government announced that it had foiled a coup plot. Later that month, however, military unrest on January 23rd resulted in a successful coup. The next day, the Patriotic Movement for the Safeguard and Restoration of Burkina Faso, MPSR, led by Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henry Sandago Dambia, announced that it had deposed Kabore, suspended the Constitution, dissolved the National Assembly and the government, and closed the country's border. The military junta was now in full control of the nation. Soon, Ibrahim Torre, one of the leaders of the military, took power as transition president. Soon, Ibrahim Traore, one of the leaders of the military, became the transition president of this military junta. Since Traore took power, elections have been pushed back. Traore has prioritized the security of Burkina Faso and autonomy of the nation above all else. Traore has given many speeches about reclaiming the resources of the nation and standing up to powers that challenge Burkina Faso. He has directly tried to make an impact by constructing the first Burkinabe-owned gold refinery. Traore also seeks to create closer ties with Russia because the support Putin has pledged to the nation seems to be the most beneficial of anywhere in the world. Traore claims that Burkina Faso and Russia have a similar history of alienation and can benefit from one another. Traore's military regime has gained both praise and criticism for its staunch pan-African stance. Many believe a leader like Traore is necessary for the independence and growth of Burkina Faso. Others claim it is far too nationalist and will become dangerous very soon.
The jury is still out on whether Traore will be a positive or negative force for the future of the nation, but his momentum cannot be denied. Due to the jihadism and widespread poverty in both Mali and Burkina Faso, two nations that occupy the Sahel region, there have been meetings to form a new United Nation. The odds of it happening are low, but both Burkina Faso and Mali have been in political chaos for the last two decades trying to halt terrorism. Both nations are deeply impoverished and believe a unity would help increase economic standing. The issue is that both of these nations are about 80% impoverished and have complete struggle with safety, political stability, issues with the government, issues with the economy, all sorts of things. So the hope is that if these nations of about 20 to 22 million each unite, they will become this larger nation of almost 45 million and will combine all their resources and push them towards solving the issues for everyone. And all that brings us to the present, where the nation is one of the lowest ranking globally for economy, poverty rates, and literacy rates. Instability in politics since independence has made it hard for long-lasting policies to be enacted. But with a proud Burkinabe administration under Traore, significant changes may be at the forefront of the future for Burkina Faso. And that gets us to the end, where whenever we finish these episodes, I like to do a little takeaway or mindset from the history. And with Burkina Faso, I want to say, take care of yourself first and do what you need to do for yourself first. This country is facing a lot of criticism for things it's done the past 50 years. Thomas Sankara made the country a little bit socialist and connected with the USSR. That was something that benefited them because nobody in the West was doing it, and they were all seen as former colonial powers, which they 100% were. In the modern times, you have men like Ibrahim Tahore trying their best to connect the nation to make its own supply. It's connecting with Russia. It's doing things that are very controversial, but they seem pathwise like they're going to benefit the nation. There's also the plan that this country might unite with its northern neighbor of Mali, which is a thing that is seen as an abuse of power from Mali and Burkina Faso forming a giant empire monopoly. But if these are the things these nations, especially Burkina Faso, need to do to benefit themselves, then it's what needs to be done. And Burkina Faso is doing this with pride. The people of it are supporting whatever they need to support to get their country out of this literal 50-year rut they've been in ever since independence. So with all that being said, I think you should internalize that within yourself, is there's going to be a million distractions in life, and there's going to be a million different paths you can take from school to life to jobs relationships, all that. But the person who's going to be alone with you, looking you in the mirror at night, having thoughts and feelings is you. No matter your partner, no matter your brother, parents, dog, anything, the person who's there most of the time and is going to be with you in the end of it all is you. And you're the person you have to take care of because everyone else can take care of themselves. And if everybody's taking care of themselves, you'll be fine because we'll all be in the same boat. So I say with you, no matter what people think, do what you have to do for yourself. If it's you isolate yourself from a group to get more work done, you go out of your way to get extra work done, you go out of your way for a new job, a new relationship, you go to a relationship that people don't agree with. If you know in your heart what you're doing is right and is the best option for you, do it because you're always going to have oppositions no matter what you do. Think about Mr. Beast. Brought vision to the blind, and people found an issue with it. He's brought water to places that need water, and people find an issue with it. No matter how great of a thing you do, no matter where it falls on the scale, people are going to criticize you, so don't take it in. Do whatever you need to do for yourself, and be like Burkina Faso, because they have gone through struggle after struggle for decades on decades, and have not given up. And now they're at a point where they're looking to really get things going for themselves, and that's what you should do for yourself, because the only person you really have, and that's going to be where I sign off. I love recording this stuff, I love episodes like Burkina Faso, and all ones like it, so... I'm very glad you guys are here. I'm very glad you guys listened, and I hope all of us know more about this nation and got a good takeaway, or just enjoyed history, whatever it is for you. I'm very thankful you're here, and I'm very thankful for everyone who listens to these. So thank you all so much for being here, and one more time, 
My name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and that was Burkina Faso. You guys have a wonderful day. Thank you.